And happy Monday. I'm so excited about my conversation with Sarah. I actually recorded this, feels like a while ago. I don't really, time is such a blur right now. But when I tell you, I have never related more to a book in my entire life. That is exactly how I felt about drinking games, which I talk about many times on this podcast. I cannot encourage you all enough to check out Sarah's book. It's incredible. And even if you're not even contemplating quitting drinking or anything like that, it's not a book that's um, primary focus is on sobriety. It's really more of a memoir. And I just, I mean, she's an amazing writer. And if you've like, I don't know, I I think a lot of people can relate to some of the stories she tells and I certainly did. And also I learned that she's a Virgo, which was really exciting. Um, That part was after we recorded, but anyways, before I get into that, I just wanted to quickly recap my uh, weekend. Um, Actually, there's really only one thing I wanted to share uh, because I'm, you know, trying to be fully transparent with all of y'all about my sobriety process and just like the difficulties I've had um, throughout it. And so far, I I honestly cannot say that I've craved a drink in the past, I think it's like eight weeks now, maybe I'm on nine, nine weeks, I think, Um, or eight weeks, nine weeks. Either way, I cannot say that I've ever craved a drink really which has been surprising honestly um but yesterday I went uh bouldering and rock climbing with my friend Gabby which was so fun um and it's the the rock climbing place is right across from this cute like coffee and beer shop that uh I love here in Austin it's called uh cosmic coffee and beer in case anyone in Austin wants to check it out and when I fit it, when we finished bouldering, we were like so sore. I mean, I'm honestly in still in so much pain, and it was just so such like so fun and such a good time. And we were gonna go to Cosmic after, and there was really a moment where I was thinking like, damn, like I would love a beer right now. Like that sounds so nice. It was a beautiful day, and I just finished like doing this fun activity with my friend, and then we were gonna go to this place where I used to go grab beers. They have like all these different, you know beers on tap that like I like and so there was a moment where I was just really sad and not sad but just kind of disappointed um and when I got there and I I didn't expect them to have any non-alcoholic brews because I usually check their like website and um menus beforehand and I didn't notice any Uh, but then I saw like they had a zero proof um beer and I got it and it honestly was delicious. Like it tasted, <laughs> I clearly don't know anything about beer because it just tasted like a good beer. And it was just really, I think one thing I've been realizing and I've talked a lot about this with uh, my friend Joanne, who's been on the podcast a couple of times is 
there just need to be more zero proof um, drinks like beer and wine um, in places because mocktails are cool and all, but at the end of the day, it's just like juice. And it's really nice to have like something that, you know, used to give you a lot of pleasure, but like a lot. And it's really nice to have that in a setting where you know that it's not going to hurt you or uh, harm you in any way. So um, all that is to say, anyone listening who's, you know, struggling or maybe feels like, oh, damn, if I become sober, like I won't be able to have that like post-workout or post-hike beer or something like that. I'm here to tell you that you can because you can go to Cosmic and you can get one. Um, anyway, I am barely awake, so I'm going to stop talking. But here is my episode with Sarah Levy. I hope you all enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace and the City. Today, I'm so excited to be here with Sarah Levy, who is a writer, author, and editorial consultant. Her work examines the intersection of sobriety, relationships, and identity, and has been featured in the New York Times, New York Magazine, The Cut, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, Vogue, Elle, and other uh, publications. Her first book, which I just read, a memoir called Drinking Games, was just released in January, and I could not recommend it enough. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. It's like so cool reading off all of that and realizing that like you're the person sitting in front of me. Thanks, Zoe. It's so good to meet you, and I'm really excited to be here and to chat. Also, I like just a quick side note. I kept being like, why does your name sound so familiar? And when I looked on Instagram for, you know, Sarah Levy, I was like, wow, this person is like, I was like, she looks so familiar, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized I was looking at Sarah Levy, like Dan Levy's um, sister, <laughs> sister, Eugene Levy's daughter, uh, like Twyla from Schitt's Creek. And it was like, ah, okay. Not <laughs> me. One. Different one. <laughs> it's so funny you say that. There's a lot of funny reviews of drinking games from people that I've seen online that are like, I really liked this book, but like, she didn't talk at all about Shit's Creek and like I kept waiting for her to get to that part. And I'm like, that's not who wrote the book, but Wait, that's um, so funny. I know. I wonder if on the other hand, like Sarah Levy is having people like going up to her and being like, I really admire your sober journey. <laughs> I know. It's really funny. But I am a huge Shit's Creek fan, so very happy to be confused with her anytime. That's so funny. Okay, so um, I'd love if you could just start off by telling me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? How old are you? What's your story? Yeah, so I am 33 years old. I'm originally born in New York City and grew up around in the New York City area, New York, suburbs, Westchester, New Jersey, um, moved around quite a bit, um, and then went to college at Brown University in Rhode Island moved back to New York City after graduation and lived there for almost 10 years and moved to Los Angeles where I live now uh, almost two years ago. And I live here now with my husband and our dog, Bree. And like you said, I'm a writer and an author and I write a lot about my journey to sobriety. So cool. Um, so I want to jump right into the book because there was just so much that resonated with me as I mentioned, like before we started recording, I literally felt like I was reading 
the pages like right out of my own journal and just the stories and the debauchery and the you know like the college like hookups and everything like it it really felt just so almost like meta um (laughs) reading your book um so in the memoir you break down the chapters into four sections wasted hungover sober and free um I was wondering I guess first like I'm curious what made you decide to like have those different sections and divvy up you know your life story into those categories yeah so when I first started thinking about writing a book originally I was thinking I would do it in like a traditional memoir format like very linear and just go in chronological order but I actually have you know I have a wonderful literary agent and she had a great suggestion to consider an essay collection and I started reading different essay collections and just like really fell in love with the medium as a storytelling format feel like you can really just like jump into the action and like the meat of who someone is and just like really get a sense of their story with an essay collection without having to like start when they were a kid and kind of like go through Mm. the years that way and especially with something like drinking and sobriety I felt like there were so many aspects of my life that had been impacted by my alcohol consumption and I felt like it would be much more interesting to like view my drinking and sobriety through those lenses. And so the way that I ended up breaking the book down into the different sections and then like within each section, the different essay topics, you know, was about like the areas that I was really focused on at different parts of my life. So dating, relationships, my friendships, wellness culture, social media, my career. Um, And it allowed me to kind of like go back and forth between like past and present um, through like focusing it on those different topics. And I wanted also like, I would think a lot about like the reader experience when I was writing and I really wanted someone to be able to like pick up the book, maybe like newly sober or not even sober and be able to kind of jump into like the solution and kind of like the meat of what being sober can look like. And for me, like when I was struggling with blackouts and contemplating sobriety but didn't know anyone who was sober so it seemed really scary I felt like every book that I read talked a lot about drinking and like there were a lot of like kind of rock bottom stories but I I was really interested in finding a book and then ultimately writing a book that like just jumped right into what life was like sober yeah I think what I loved about your book and like I'm a huge memoir person like I just think it's so interesting getting a look into someone's lived experience. Like, I guess that's why I love podcasts so much, but, um, is like it technically like obviously was a story about drinking, but it wasn't a story about just drinking. It was about, you know, the experience of like a young woman, um, like navigating all these different like life issues that I certainly related to. And I'm sure a lot of your readers can relate to. So it wasn't just, I mean, drinking but it was because of like the nature of our society drinking was infused in a lot of the different topics exactly yeah and I felt like being able to talk about you know something like my career or my mental health or my relationship with exercise or my relationship with food and then weave alcohol and sobriety back into it was much more relatable to like what my experience actually was versus a book that was like a hundred percent about drinking and getting sober like I also I wanted you know all people all readers to be able to like see something of themselves in the book and um 
so I, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you like resonated with that. So much. It's like, I could spend an entire podcast episode on each chapter, but I will restrain myself um, <laughs> by choosing just a few, which I like wrote down and um, would love to just like jump into. Uh, so your first chapter is titled what I mean when I say I'm a blackout drinker, which mm-hmm. boom, right when you said that, I was like, girl, same. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's interesting because I like I too when I was drinking was a blackout drinker not always but it's like once I the first time I blacked out in like a sophomore year of college I want to say um then it was like happened more and more often which Mm -hmm. now I understand is how it works um but it was confusing to explain both to others and to myself because I think there's this even though black like blacking out, especially in like colleges, is like is very normalized and it's kind of gotten to the point where people will be like, Oh, like, haha, like I got so blacked last night, like it's just too normalized in that sense. But then on the other hand, like when I once mentioned that I blacked out to my parents, like I think I may have induced a heart attack. Like they were, you know, thinking of the person like falling over, like unconscious. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about, you know, the origins of your drinking and how it escalated over your teenage and young adult years. Um, And then like what you learned about blackouts, like through your sobriety. Yeah, definitely. Um, And just a side note, it's like so interesting hearing your experience and like, yeah, how normalized it was like amongst your peers and then like the shocked expression on your parents' face. I remember Get, like doing a talk um, about my sobriety and um, talking about my blackouts. And this like older gentleman came up to me afterwards and he was like in his sixties or seventies and was like, I've been sober for a long time. And like, I never blacked out. Like mm-hmm. I drank every day, but I never blacked out. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I didn't know that people got drunk or like could have a full-on drinking problem without blacking out so just like a side note it's it's very interesting um but yeah my trajectory with alcohol was nothing special like I grew up in a pretty like happy well-adjusted home I have like two loving parents who I'm really close to a younger brother and I like very much knew that you know I shouldn't drink and drive and like learned about like alcohol, you know, underage drinking. Um, and I was a pretty good kid. Like I was a rule follower. I've always been a perfectionist. And so I was kind of scared to drink actually for, for a little while. And I was like a late bloomer by certain accounts. Like I had friends who had like started experimenting with alcohol when we were like 12 or 13. And I didn't drink for the first time until I was 15, maybe like almost my, it was like almost my 16th birthday. Um, And, you know, I'd had an eating disorder and like felt kind of just always less than and felt really uncomfortable in my own skin, um, like prior to that. And I remember when I drank for the first time, just this like ease that washed over me. Like I felt just good. I felt calm. I felt fun. I felt like really confident. And, um, you know, when I started to drink, like I just wanted more and blacked out, like, you know, one of my first nights drinking, um, 
and like it wasn't fun and it wasn't cute I have no memory of you know that night and I threw up and like had to be brought home to my parents and it was like most people would have that experience and be like oh I probably shouldn't drink that much Mm -hmm. but I didn't I was confused about like why and how that had happened but I still really liked like the effect produced by alcohol and um like fast forward I went to college I you know like you're saying it was like very normalized going out on the weekends like during the week going out all the time basically and you know my friends weren't necessarily like having the same reaction to alcohol like I always noticed I had like way worse hangovers and I was blacking out like pretty consistently whereas like maybe they would black out or like brown out occasionally or be like oh yeah the end of the night's kind of fuzzy but like I was consistently the one that was like getting wasted when we were going out and um I just like didn't know what to do with that information I didn't know anyone who was sober definitely not in college and then when we all graduated and a lot of us moved to New York City my drinking just sort of like continued in a similar vein and just like more of the same, like hurting myself when I was drunk, waking up with like scrapes and bruises, losing my phone, losing my wallet, like people being mad at me, hooking up with people I shouldn't hook up with, like just waking up and feeling kind of that shame and anxiety. And um, I just spent a lot of time in my twenties trying so hard to like control my drinking, trying to figure out like, how to drink like everyone else, making rules for myself, you know, that like I wasn't going to drink, like I wasn't going to have shots, I was going to have water in between, like just like this crazy game of chess that I was always playing in my head. And what I learned is like if you have a like healthy, normal relationship with alcohol, you probably don't need to be doing those things. Um, Mm -hmm. But I just spent years trying to figure out how to like drink normally. And... I finally just like got to a point where I was done and um, you know, like this is like a very simplified version of the story. It obviously took like there were some starts and stops over the years, but um, when I turned 28, it was like four days after my 28th birthday. I just had a really bad night. I went out, I drank too much. I woke up. I didn't remember how I'd gotten to this bed that I woke up in I didn't know what had happened between me and the person that I woke up next to and I just felt horrible about myself and um I was just like I think that I'm done I think I need to um not drink for a little while and I didn't know what being sober was like I said I didn't really know anyone who was in recovery um and this was 2017 so the sober curious movement was like just sort of becoming known in like certain circles but it wasn't as widespread as it is now and there weren't like sober influencers or podcasts I felt really like isolated in it and um that's partially why like I'm so open about it now and write about it and talk about it um but at the time I just was like this will be my secret and I will not tell anyone and I will just like even if I have no fun ever again like I still need to not drink. That's how bad I felt. And that's how like desperate I was to just like stop waking up every weekend with a horrible headache and like anxiety. Yeah. Wow. I can relate just to so much that you, you talked about and definitely want to go back to some of those points because it's just, 
I mean, I, I feel like I can, I, I can't say it enough how much I like relate to your story. Um, and I also just really commend you for, you know, making that decision before it was like, quote unquote, cool to not drink or like at least in the infancy, you know, the stages. And I can't even imagine like how people did this like 10, you know, 20 years ago. It's really, really wild to think about. Um, so one thing I also wanted to talk about was like your desire for drinking in a way almost to like keep up with the boys, which you, you touched on. Mm-hmm. And I, that resonated with me a lot because I feel like, and I asked this to um, my friend when I had her on my podcast, um, she's sober and I was like, are you an introvert or an extrovert? And she said extrovert. Um and I am as well. And I think it's interesting because, like, I never necessarily used alcohol as a sober lubricant or a social lubricant. Um, but I more so use it because, like, I was the fun one. Like, mm-hmm. I I was looked at as, like, oh, Zoe's fun. Like, if you want to have, like, a good time, she's going to dance on the tables and do whatever and, and uh, you know, she loves the game odds where it's like odds you do this and then you do it. So that really resonated with me of almost being like, oh, I can hang. And so I, w- I was wondering if you had a similar experience and like how you would define your personality going out, whether it's sober or, um, you know, previously alcohol induced. Mm. Yes, totally relate to like how you're describing yourself. And I also very much felt that way it's so interesting how like we or at least I'll just speak for myself like in my early 20s like I just really didn't know who I was I had like some ideas of you know what I was passionate about and like maybe what I wanted to do with my life but like really like felt very lost and couldn't like grasp onto any of those things long enough to like actually take steps towards them and so what I was really able to hang on to was like I'm fun, you know, like that identity Mm -hmm. of like the fun party girl brought me a lot of comfort and definitely like feeling like one of the guys and feeling like, you know, a guy's girl and like I'm chill and I'm always down to late night or whatever after we go out. And um, even if I'm like the only girl in the room, like that's cool. Like I'm down for that. And it's like, you know, in sobriety, I remember having a conversation with a friend who was like talking about similar things and we were like being down for whatever is not necessarily like a personality trait and I write that in the book like it's it's just simply like being a body in the room and like being agreeable to like whatever other people decide and you know for a long time like that was my defining personality trait in my mind right like I could talk to some friends now who would be like no, like you were always you deep down inside, right? You were funny, you were whatever, but I didn't see myself that way. I only saw myself as like, like you're saying, like I'm Zoe, I'm fun, I'm, I'm down to party, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that like alcohol really was a huge part of that because when there were moments where I would feel like anxious or maybe I want to stay in tonight or maybe I don't want to, just go along with what everyone else is doing. Like, I don't want to go to that concert or whatever. Um, I didn't have enough confidence in myself to like actually articulate that and like stand in that. 
And so once I would start drinking, like all of those thoughts just like fell to the wayside. And it was just like, yeah, I'm fun and whatever everyone else, else wants to do. And I think for years and years that really kept me like at an arm's length from myself. And like that kept me really disconnected from just like my intuition and being honest with myself about like who I was and what I actually liked and wanted to do. And I spend so much time at home these days. And that's like just also a byproduct of being a little bit older and being married now. And like my life looks different than when I was 23 and like living in New York. But um, I think even if I was that age, but like the version of myself that I am now, I would still spend a lot more time at home than I did when I was younger because we were talking before we started recording, like I genuinely like being on my couch with my dog, like watching TV. And like, I just didn't really let myself be honest about that when I was in my twenties because I had a lot of FOMO and I was always like so concerned with what everyone else was doing and didn't want to miss anything. And went out every night, regardless of how tired I was, whether or not I was sick, whether or not I wanted to go out. Like I just was like, okay, well let's take a shot and then see how I feel. And, um, that, yeah, that's like what I did for, for years. Yeah. And you talk about this in like the beginning of your book where when you were, you know, on a date, um, with your now husband and he asked like, what do you like to do? on the weekends or something or like what are your hobbies and you had to like really like search for it and it made me think I'm like what do I like to do like I like to run mm-hmm. and then like, I like to play with my dog but it, it's like it's so sad that after we reach a certain age I'm sure I'm you know it can't be just a coincidence that both you and I are thinking the same thing of like what the hell do I like to do aside from hang out with my friends i.e go to bars and like drink on Saturdays. Right. So it's just like, it's so interesting thinking about that and anyone listening, like take a moment and think about like what you like to do. And if you can't think of a few things and maybe the time that you do have on your hands is being just spent too much doing one thing, which is probably drinking. (laughs) Yeah. And I also like, you know, you mentioned my husband, Adam and like that, you know, the question that he asked me and, he asked me like about what I used to like to do for fun also when I was a kid. And like, I think about that all the time because it's like, we all had like interests and we were able to like have genuine fun when we were kids long before we started to drink, you know? And so I think it's also like tapping back into that and being like, what did I, you know, I would go to like a friend's birthday party when I was a kid and have the best time ever with like sugar and like, just like being with my friends or whatever, you know? And like, I lost that ability somewhere along the way to just be and like have fun because of like the fact that it was a beautiful day out and I was with people I loved and I had like a cupcake or whatever it was, you know, like somewhere along the way, I started to require alcohol to like have fun and it became like my only hobby. And so in sobriety, I definitely spent a lot of time actively reengaging with myself and like figuring out what I liked to do. Mm-hmm. So in 2023, I'm really trying to kind of amp up my health and fitness routine from a holistic perspective. And one of the ways I've been doing this is with Oro, which is an app providing a one-stop shop for different types of virtual fitness and wellness rituals. Um, I don't know if any of y'all 
are fans of the account Sweats in the City. Um, when I was living in New York, I practically, you know, it was practically like my Instagram Bible. And I just look up to Elizabeth and Dale so much as female entrepreneurs um, and just like what they've created. So Oro, if you don't know, was created by them. And so it has all of their favorite boutique fitness and self-care classes in one place. All videos are live, um, but they're also on demand. So you can watch it anytime uh, from anywhere. There's over 500 classes and instructors to to choose from. And they're all of my favorite types of classes like Pilates, bar, sculpt, um, and then more wellness things like meditation and sound baths. Um, Yesterday, I did this amazing Pilates slash meditation class with Natasha and it was exactly what I needed. It's freezing outside and I didn't want to, you know, pay for a day pass at the gym. And so I'm just so glad that I have this app. And again, it's also really cheap. That is like the best part. I was paying for class pass previously and it's like, okay, you, you know, pay a certain amount of month for a certain amount of credits, but those credits don't don't get you very far, especially in like a place like New York. And so if you uh, download the app, it's only $19 a month, but you can get $5 off your first month and a free week trial by using the promo code Zoe Skur. So that's Zoe, Z-O-E-S-C-U-R, all one word, and you'll get, it'll be basically $14 for an unlimited amount of classes for a month and an extra free week. So highly encourage that you check it out. And if you have any questions, let me know. So the next chapter I wanted to go over was chapter four, uh, Bachelor Nation and the Myth of Moderation, which first the name, I was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't relate to this person more because I've been watching The Bachelor since I was literally like 11 years old. And moderation is like a huge thing that I've been exploring through these podcast interviews. So you kind of touched on it earlier, but you like when you were saying that your 20s was like a lot of you jumping through hoops trying to moderate your drinking. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that because it's for some quick context, not only did like I do the same, but I also suffered from an eating disorder um, like in my, I'd say like late teens through early mid 20s and I, I don't know if there's like research studies on this and there probably are, but I think there's a lot of overlap between the way I looked at food and the way I looked at drinking. And like, for example, when I was restricting food in the back of my head, it was like I was still always thinking about food. And I know that there's a study out there that shows like, you know, you're like I would like look at menus almost as like a way to like feed myself even though I wasn't letting myself actually enjoy anything. And then it's always the nights that I was like, okay, I'm only going to have two glasses of wine. And then I would black out because I would not just have two glasses of wine. And so I'd love to hear, you know, your perspective on this myth of moderation and like what, like how you kind of had to come to the realization that you couldn't just have two Mm. glasses of wine per se. Yeah, I think that correlation that you're drawing is a really accurate one and definitely has been my experience as well. Just like whenever I'm in like an obsession, whether it's about food or, you know, my calories, how much I'm exercising, like the more I'm 
setting rules for myself or thinking about it, like the more I'm fixating on it. And I think like so much of intuitive eating, right? Like principles of just like eating and listening to your body is not like obsessing about bad foods, good foods, like making rules for yourself, right? All that stuff. And so for me, the nature of trying to moderate my drinking was all of those things that I had also done with food and, you know, over-exercising. And the second that I kind of, and I think it's also human nature to a certain extent, like the second we tell ourselves we can't have something, like that's what we're thinking about, you know? And um, especially Mm -hmm. if you're maybe like have an addictive mind or whatever, but I, you know, would have these periods where I would be like really trying to moderate my drinking. And like what that meant for me was I would probably have had like a bad night out or um, like a series of just like sloppy blackouts and would have this like reckoning with myself of like something has to change. Um, I wasn't ready to like get sober altogether. Felt like abstaining entirely was like super dramatic and like very black and white. And I was just like, okay, I just can like find a way to like reel it in, you know? And what I've actually found is like when I took alcohol off the table entirely and was just like, you don't have to drink at all. I felt much freer from the obsession than when I was like trying to drink a certain amount or drink in a certain way. But I wasn't like at that point, um, until I was and until I was ready to get sober, I couldn't have gotten sober. And so for years, I really did this like dance with moderation and it, for me, just never really worked. Um, I basically would try like controlled drinking. So I would start out my night and make a number, like I'm going to have two drinks tonight, three drinks, four drinks, whatever. And like the bar was kind of always moving. It was always like the number was changing, but I, and I even like eventually, was seeing a therapist and like, we would talk about like my plan for how much I was going to drink together. And like I said, you know, it was like, I'm not going to have this type of alcohol or I'm only going to have this many drinks. Then I'm going to switch to beer or I'm going to have water in between all of my drinks, or I'm not going to drink after a certain time of the night. Right. Like it was always different rules for myself. And sometimes it would work and I would not black out and I would just like be a little bit drunk and I would be like, okay, great. That was a a success. Except it wasn't a success because the whole night I was just obsessed with how much I was or wasn't drinking and like wasn't having fun, Mm -hmm. wasn't feeling free, wasn't feeling present with my friends, wasn't like enjoying my night. And so it's like, sure, I was technically able to control how much I drank sometimes, um, but I was miserable. And then there would be other nights where I would just be like, you know, screw it at a certain point. I would just be like, I'm just going to drink however much I want to drink. And for whatever reason, the way that my body processes alcohol, once I have a few drinks in my system, like my threshold is like my ability to stop just doesn't exist. I just want more. Um, and so that was kind of how it was. It was either I moderated successfully, but I was miserable or I let myself drink how much I wanted to drink and blacked out or woke up feeling horrible or like just couldn't stick to like the idea that I had in my head of how much I should drink. And what's interesting now being sober. So like I said, as soon as I kind of like removed alcohol from the equation, I felt so much freer. It was such a relief to just be like, oh, instead of like 
these mental gymnastics, I can just not drink. And it's for me, like being sober in a lot of ways, it has not been easy, but it has been in some ways easier than my eating disorder recovery because with alcohol, like being sober, you just remove it. You just don't do it. You don't drink. You still have to eat every day. Right. And like, so that voice can, Mm -hmm. you know, there's definitely days where it's quiet and like, I don't think about it. And, but there are of course moments where like the voice can kind of pop up and like the challenge with that is like, you still have to eat three meals a day and like have snacks and right. You know, with alcohol though, there is a certain amount of relief and just like saying, I'm not going to do it. And it's just removed altogether. It was a huge relief for me after the battle that I, like the inner battle that I had with moderation for so long. Yeah, no, that's so true. And uh, Glennon Doyle actually talks about that, like how she doesn't struggle with her, you know, sobriety anymore. But every so often, like she'll relapse back into an eating disorder. Because as you said, like food is always going to be there, you know, whether it's unhealthy food, quote unquote, or like healthy Mm -hmm. food, Um, whereas you can throw out all the wine bottles and just like remove yourself from um from the alcohol. So I, I can completely agree with you on that. And it's, you know, it's interesting because I think you mentioned this earlier, like there are, and I agree, there's like definitely some people, I know plenty of them who can sit at dinner with a cocktail and like sip it quietly and, you know, go through the whole meal, maybe finish like half of the drink and then have, you know, feel perfectly content and like I just was never one of those people. Like me neither. Like it would be great. It'd be great if I could. But um, I definitely think it's a certain personality type. And like when I look at my sister, for example, she is one of those people who can just have a glass of wine and like not even want to finish it. Whereas I'm like, oh, that's a waste of money. That's a waste of like whatever. Um, and it's. I I often like question whether sobriety is black and white and I think I've kind of decided that it depends on the person like for me yes like I don't think I could be a moderate drinker but there are people who can and it's just kind of knowing yourself and knowing how you interact with certain substances or you know I was always an obsessive person like I had addictions and obsessions since I was like eight Mm mm-hmm Totally. And like, it's so funny. I have friends too who can like have half a glass of wine and like leave it. And um, for me, like having like one glass of wine, like always just seems like a waste of calories. Like I don't get the point of just having one drink if I'm not going to like get drunk and have it be like, have it have like an effect on me. And that was like a pretty strong indicator to like kind of what you're saying of like, the obsession or like the addiction, like just like my brain working differently than other people. And, you know, and like, I had the same thought too of like sobriety seems really extreme. It seems really black and white, but it's like blackouts are really extreme and like pretty black and white and pretty dramatic, you know, and not everyone is experiencing them. So it's just funny how we can like talk ourselves out of things and like be like, oh, but that's like, being sober is just like so black and white that, you know, and it's like, okay, but I've never not been black and white. Like there's a lot of aspects of my life where I am pretty black and white. So let's just 
lean into it, you know? Yeah. And it's also a product of just society having normalized alcohol so much. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the second most addictive substance aside from heroin. And like no one is a you don't call anyone like a moderate heroin user. Like, right. It's it's, it's just the only toxin that we look at as like like necessary as like it's like part of adulthood yeah alcohol it's really interesting yeah and it's really complex and like you know of course there are like big alcohol businesses that have like a vested interest in keeping us drinking and um you know and I think that like we've seen a big shift over the last couple of decades with the way that we think about like food and where our food comes from. And like, there've been documentaries, right. That have like shed light on fast food industries and like how, you know, we're conditioned to like eat a certain way. Right. And there's many more people who go plant-based and who are like more mindful of like what we put in our bodies and eating less processed food, et cetera. And I think we're entering a similar period with alcohol where, people's eyes are just being opened, you know, to just like the benefits of drinking. And I'm, I don't think everyone needs to be sober, but just like the benefits of drinking less and just like drinking more mindfully if you can and if you are like a normal drinker. Yeah, I actually, weirdly enough, um, I guess it was like a couple of weeks ago, there was a New York Times article about like even a little bit of alcohol may harm your health. And I was like, yeah, well, that was well-timed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Like we've always kind of been fed that line of like, oh, it's good for your heart. It's mm-hmm. good for, you know. And um I remember like I write in the book my mom is a breast cancer survivor and I remember being at one of her appointments with her oncologist when she finished treatment and her her doctor was like, "Yeah, I don't want you drinking alcohol at all." And at the time like I was still drinking and I remember being like, "Can she even have like one drink?" Like you know, glass of wine. And and her oncologist was like, I mean, if you really have to, like, sure. But I really, there's no benefit, you know, as a cancer survivor for you to be drinking alcohol. And um, I just, that really always stuck with me because I had always, you know, heard this narrative that like, oh, in moderation, it's good for you. And there's health benefits. And here is this doctor, you know, my mom has just like fought for her life. And her doctor was just like, you know, like you should not be consuming this. Yeah. I, I like my mom's also a breast cancer survivor. My grandma had it. My dad's mom had it. So like both, both sides. And mm-hmm. so it is wild that like, again, like our, uh, me, like talking myself into like why alcohol is okay, but I like shouldn't be on birth control because, you know, I shouldn't mm. take anything that will add estrogen to my body. Meanwhile, alcohol is a carcinogen and I am very high risk for breast cancer. And what am I yeah. doing? Like it is just wild how we can just create these narratives for ourselves until it's like we have to be the ones to kind of wake ourselves up to them. Yeah. Like the reality. Mm-hmm. So the chapter that resonated with me the most, and I actually the other day, like when I was after I finished this chapter, I called my dad, and and uh, I was like, "Please find this funny because well, the chapter that I'm referring to is chapter thirteen, point of view. You have a point of view, mm-hmm. and um, I'll just I guess like provide a little bit of context as to why." In hindsight, I thought it was just so funny that this chapter existed. So uh, basically, the 
reason I like or the deciding point for me to become completely sober happened uh, after New Year's Eve when I uh, got way too drunk and I had promised not only like myself but my my family who was visiting New York that I was just going to take it easy and you know just have a couple drinks watch the ball drop because we had a very important event the next day we were going to see Hamilton and mm. it was the first time we were seeing it as a family and then going to Nobu for dinner after. So like quite the, you know, I was so excited. Amazing day. Amazing yeah. day planned. And then I get just wasted and am carried into my parents' hotel room by Bellman. Mm. Um, mm. And just safe to say that we did not think we were going to make a Hamilton the next day. And so when you have a chapter and you start talking about how your sobriety related to Hamilton, whereas like your drinking game <laughs> related to Aaron Burr, I literally like almost passed out. Like I, I was just like, oh, this is not <laughs> happening. Um, and I called my dad and he did think it was funny, kind of. Uh, I was like, guess what? Like, I'm no longer Aaron Burr. Um, but anyways, <laughs> so I just wanted to tell, share that story. Wait, but did you make it to Hamilton? How oh, did, did you guys go to Nobu? I, okay. My mom was like, do we bring her? Like, she, my poor mom, like, comes in like, here's coffee. Like, I, I Googled, like, coffee should help. And I was just sitting there more, like, more embarrassed than anything. Like, oh, my God. And yeah, we yeah. did make it to Hamilton. I was awake okay, the entire thing. It was fantastic. And Nobu was fantastic. So okay, good. I yeah. rallied for sure. But um, <laughs> in the chapter, what I'm referencing is this realization that you had where you realized that, you know, in order to become bold, ambitious and accomplished like Hamilton, you had to have a point of view. And like when you were drinking you didn't have that point of view. You were more like Aaron Burr, who was like the rule follower, the people pleaser mm -hmm. who, you know, wouldn't stand for anything so he could fall for everything. So I was wondering if mm -hmm. you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. I, I mean, you said it like exactly how it was, you know, I just like Aaron Burr was um, really concerned, I think, with like playing by the rules. And it was really important to me to fit in um, to have like the right group of friends, the right clothes, the right like job, have everything look the right way on Instagram. And like, I just really was living my life for like not even other people because like I don't think other people cared that much. I was living my life for like this imagined person that was in my mind like critiquing and like judging everything I did. Um, and, you know, like in Hamilton, like Hamilton just like doesn't care what people think. He's bold. He's unapologetic. He barges into like Washington's office if you've seen the show and is like, you know, not waiting around like and um, like just asks for what he wants and goes after what he wants. And, you know, for me, like I remember seeing Hamilton and I remember like falling in love with the music and the show and just being like, like this character of Hamilton that Lin-Manuel Miranda like created was just like writing like he was running out of time, you know, writing all the time and creating work and just so passionate. And I remember just being like, wow, you know, I feel like I 
create nothing, do nothing. I'm just living my life for others. And all I do is go out. And it was this like light bulb moment for me. And I didn't get sober until a few years after, or until a year after um, that show. But I, it, it, it left a mark. Like I, you know, remember just listening to the music and thinking so much about like this idea of like being in New York and having like this opportunity to make something of myself and just feeling like I was really wasting it. And so when I got sober, you know, and started to kind of like we were talking about get in touch with my intuition and just like come back to myself, I really started to pay attention to like my perspective and who I wanted to be and like who I really was. And for me, a really big part of that was writing. I really wanted to write and I really wanted to like tell stories and have a voice that came across through my writing. And previously, like when I was drinking, I would know, I didn't have the confidence to do that. Like even my, like, this is such a silly thing, but like my Instagram captions were like so safe, you know, it was like, what emoji should I use? And just like everything like fitting, like not like rocking the boat at all. And I remember like even in early sobriety, just like writing longer captions on Instagram, which like is not that big of a deal. But for me felt really like radical and brave, you know, because I was like sharing parts of myself. Wasn't even necessarily talking about being sober. I was just like, I remember I was writing about like my body image and like my, you know, struggles with like confidence. And um from there started, you know, freelance writing and and started, you know, just like drafting what ended up being the book. And it, it also carried over to like different areas of my life, just like having a perspective when it came to like conversations and chiming in on, you know, things that friends were talking about instead of just like agreeing with whatever they were all saying. But the biggest thing was really like, I knew that I wanted deep down to be creating something and to be like doing work that felt meaningful to me. And I really do remember seeing Hamilton and just being like, wow, he just, he writes like he's running out of time and he's like this man on a mission. And like, I want that passion. I want that, like that zest. And like, I couldn't access that. I couldn't feel any of that because I was like so hungover or Mm -hmm. drunk all the time. Yeah. That's such a good point. And I think like you hit the nail on the head with being like, you know, having that desire and just like, but then falling back into the trap of being like, oh, but like, it, you know, why isn't this happening for me? And it's because like, you, you can't just like wait for something or to ha- like, or wait around for something to happen. Like Jay Shetty says, like, he doesn't believe in expectations because like expectations means that something is just going to magically occur where like he uses intentions, actions and something else where it's like you have to have the intention to do something and like have and then act on it. And I think Mm -hmm. when we're so consumed with drinking or partying and then the results resulting hangovers, it's easy just to say like, oh, I have no time to do that because like I'm so busy. I'm so tired. I'm so blah, blah, blah. Whereas like when you're sober and you have all this extra time just to think to yourself, you can harness that ambition and energy to create something like whatever mm-hmm. it is that you want to do, whether it's a book, a piece of art. Um, I don't know. Whatever else people like to create. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's yeah, that's such a great 
distinction to make that like, it's not just enough to think about it and want to do it. You have to take the action, you know, and I wasn't able to take action and actually sit down and do anything until I got sober. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just beginning my journey, but I'm definitely, definitely feeling that. Yeah. What advice would you give to people specifically like young women in their, let's say like late twenties or early thirties who are re like relooking at their relationship with alcohol and trying to maybe redefine it or um, maybe they're thinking about, you know, cutting it out from their life. What advice would you give them? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is you're not alone. Like I have had so many conversations, especially in the last couple of months with the, you know, my book drinking games coming out, but even like before then with young women in their twenties and thirties who are in the exact same boat, feeling the exact same way. Um, so just to normalize it, like, I think so many women are like asking themselves these questions. Um, and there is a lot of shame. And I think like, I know for me, I felt like, oh my God, I'm the only young person who's ever felt this way. I'm the only, like everyone else is able to like have a martini and like post a a video of themselves, like looking cute and going out. And like, why can't I do that? Um, But there are a lot of us. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is like, to just like do some investigating, you know, like I needed to collect a lot of information about my drinking before I was ready to get sober. And what I mean by that is like, I had a pretty strong track record of like years of blacking out and unsuccessfully trying to moderate my drinking like under my belt. And so, you know, that morning that I was like, I'm done when I was just turned 28, I was ready to be done because I had spent time really trying to make it work, you know? And so I think that that is... I think that was crucial for me because, you know, I tried at 23, 25 to like drink less and, you know, take breaks. And I just wasn't ready to stop altogether. I think you really need to be ready. And if you're not, that's okay. Um, But yeah, so I would say like do some fact finding, try to moderate your drinking. If it's miserable and you can't do it or or you can do it and you hate like every second that you spend focused on your drinking, like that's good information. And, you know, listening to these podcasts, reading books, like just journaling, like, right, like exploring the topic with yourself. And then the third thing is like, if you get to a point, you know, after all of that, where you're like, I really do think that I need to be sober, want to be sober, I would say seek out a community, you know, like whether that's whether you start with a therapist and you're like, I'm, I want to get sober and I'd like to find a group, I'd like to find a community. What do you suggest? Um, Or even just like reaching out to friends of friends who you might know are sober, like they would be happy to get coffee with you. I always say like, no one likes to talk more about being sober than a sober person. Like, um, I love getting coffee with like friends of friends or people who I don't even really know who are like, I heard through this person that you don't drink or obviously now I'm open about it. I wrote a book about it. So it's not a secret, but I'm always happy to talk to people. And, um, right. So if there's someone in your orbit in your life who you know, doesn't drink, reach out to them and get a coffee and like have a conversation, tell them what it's been like for you and like ask them how they've stayed sober. Um, I think like when we share our experiences and like identify with each other, it can be really powerful and, for me, that's like been a huge part of my own recovery is like meeting other women who don't drink and, you know, being able to like 
go to them with situations that, that I've like encountered throughout sobriety. Yeah, I completely agree. That was really the mission of this like quote unquote like season. I don't even know like segment of solace in the city of just learning from people because I know sobriety looks different for everyone. But I do think that at least just from like the X amount of people I've talked to, like there are a lot of commonalities and like ultimately just what I want to share is like whatever you're experiencing or going through or thinking about, you're probably not the only one doing so. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Solace in the City is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you know me, uh, you know that I have seen plenty of therapists in my day. And I will tell you, as much as I you know, love meeting with each therapist, it was not an easy road to find them. And uh, if you're you know, in the process of searching for a therapist, I'm sure you know that it's quite expensive. Um, I actually have been recently looking for a therapist who is licensed in both Texas and New York. And the average cost of ones that I come across are around $275 out of pocket for just one session, which is wild. So um, in the past, I have been using BetterHelp and I am obsessed with my therapist. She is amazing and has helped me through so many tough times. And I am paying a fraction of the cost of what I was paying when I was meeting with someone directly. Um, you can choose from thousands of therapists from their network and one of the parts that I like the best, and I guess this is maybe, you know, me being a people pleaser, but breaking up with therapists or meeting with someone and not getting along right away is kind of, kind of not fun. And then it's like, it makes you not really want to continue, you know, the search, but with BetterHelp, you can easily switch therapists um, and find someone who you click with and then you can meet with them at your own convenience. So I found it extremely helpful. Um, and if you choose to, you know, check this out or give it a try, you can use my code to get 10% off your first month of therapy, which is big because it's already pretty cheap. Um, so if you just go to betterhelp.com slash Zoe, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash zoe z-o-e you'll get 10 percent off your first month give it a shot and if you uh, find your therapist soulmate let me know so i always wrap up with a few questions kind of unrelated to what we've talked about um, okay. the first one is what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today and i've added the like, subtext like not including sobriety <laughs> Um, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is just my mom's journey with breast cancer, you know, watching her go through that, like, and all of us as a family going through it really changed me. I think it made me just have an appreciation for it's all, it's going to sound cheesy, but just like life, you know, and how precious it is and, mm -hmm. um, really wanting to like be a present daughter and sister and now wife and friend and just like. I think it really, you know, I was 25 when my mom was diagnosed and um, I had just turned 25 and it was terrifying. Like I, I didn't know, you know, what was going to happen. Or was I 24? I can't remember. It was like some, one of those ages, but it was really, really scary. And um, 
it did it did really have an impact on the way that I viewed like our relationship and just like my relationship with loved ones so I think that that had a big impact on me yeah that like I could definitely relate and I think one thing that um it was a, a previous guest uh told me which really resonated with me is like the only resource that we in life that we tr- like that is truly limited is time yeah and drinking really robs you of that and so mm-hmm. kind of just like you know coming to that realization of like time on earth is limited and like what am i doing with it yeah um is really powerful yeah absolutely do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by i think that one day at a time is a super, super powerful one. I think it all the time. I definitely thought about it a lot in early sobriety, right? Like it seemed very overwhelming to think about never drinking again. So I just would think like, okay, I'm not going to drink for today. I'm just going to take it one day at a time. And I apply it to different areas of my life now too, right? With like writing a book or now I'm writing my second book. Like it's very daunting to think about like finishing an entire book, but like I set I break it down into manageable goals and I set those goals for myself. And that's all I think about in, you know, the next 24 hours every day. And, um, yeah, so that's like my, my go-to is, is one day at a time. Oh, it's so exciting that you're writing another book. I'll be the first one to to buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, what do you love most about yourself? I think that I'm very, determined when I set my mind to something. Um, and I also feel like I have a good sense of humor. So throughout like challenging situations, um, I'm able to kind of like laugh at myself and find the humor in it. Yeah. That's such an important quality, especially when we have a lot of like wild stories to look back on and it's hard to find oh, yes. humor. <laughs> Yeah. Have to find like the joy in it. And, um, and I think also just like being sober now and like being able to like find like moments of joy, right. Especially when I was newly sober, like that helped me so much to be like, wait, this actually isn't so bad. Like I can laugh at myself and find moments, you know, in my day that are like still fun. And that I think like was super helpful. Yeah. I, I, um, had a Finsta in college, like a fake Instagram and I was looking through it the other day and almost every picture or video was of me doing something just completely ridiculous but the thing was is like only 50 percent of the time was I like intoxicated in those videos like I'm just a very my sister told me um on New Year's Day like Zoe if there's any person in the world that doesn't need alcohol it's you because you're already insane and I was like you know what <laughs> that is kind of true <laughs> yeah so Finding humor and just being silly, I think, is uh, always important. I love that. Yeah. And last question, which is the name of the podcast, is how do you find solace in the city? And that can be L.A., New York, Mm. imaginary. Definitely journaling and meditation. Those are like my two go-tos. I have really consistent journaling practice. I've journaled for years. Um, And it's just always allowed me to like – get in touch with myself, figure out how I'm like really feeling about something and meditation. I do it like super imperfectly. I don't do it every single day, but I try to do it. I try, I would love to do it every day and I try to, um, and also sometimes just do like a five or 10 minute guided meditation. And it really, I feel a shift. It really helps me to just like 
like my whole energy changes after I do a meditation. Um, and I started that when I had like about a year sober and I did it, you know, when I was living in New York city and it was like, I could find pockets of calm and total quiet in the midst of like Manhattan all around me. And, um, it's pretty powerful. I'm trying to get into that. So I'll let you know how it goes. (laughs) Yes, definitely. And just like start with like, even if you start with two minutes, like, and work your way up to five, yeah, you can still feel the shift even just doing a little bit. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so, so, so much for coming on the podcast. Where can everyone follow you, buy your book, um, keep in, you know, in touch and wait for your next book to come out, plug everything. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. This was so fun. Um, You can find me on Instagram at Sarah L. Levy or on my website, sarahllevy.com. And my book, Drinking Games, is on sale now and available wherever books are sold. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or at your local independent bookstore. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And bye, everyone. 